1: I'm Caleb Zacharin, assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in History. Today I'm speaking with historian Zachary M. Schrag about his recently published book, The Fires of Philadelphia Citizen Soldiers, Nativists, and the 1844 Riots Over the Soul of a Nation. Zachary is professor of history at George Mason University and also the author of the Princeton Guide to Historical Research. The Fires of Philadelphia is a gripping portrait of an American city. During a time of unrest, xenophobia, and ethnic strife, Zachary is a wonderful craftsman, and I'm sure that both readers and listeners will find tremendous value in understanding both the past and our present moment. Zachary, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Of course, you know it's great to talk with you again. Um, The last time we spoke was about Princeton Guide to Historical Research. So uh, that was I read that book first. So it was it was sort of interesting to read that book and then to read this book and see. Uh, how you put into practice what you're, what the, you know, the sort of things you talked about. And I think you did a, a wonderful job. Um, so, you know, as always, uh, before jumping into the book, I was just wanted to tell, tell us about yourself and your background.
0: So, as you said, I'm a professor of history at George Mason University. I started there in 2004. So, I'm coming up on my 20th anniversary in a year or so. And uh, yes, this is uh, my fourth book. It took me so long. It was supposed to be my third book, but but actually um, took a while to finish. So I, I did
1: the Princeton book um, while this was in process. Uh, and you know, why did you choose to write write this book in particular?
0: So the odd thing about this book is that I was trained primarily as a 20th century historian. Um, my previous work had been in post 1945 U.S. history, and. Originally, this was going to be another book about that period. I was interested in the riots of the 1960s. Um, Washington is where I grew up. So the 1968 Washington riot, Um, obviously Newark, Detroit, all of the riots of the multiple long hot summers from 1964 on were interesting to me. And I was trying especially to understand the government response to these. And one question I had is, why would you send in the National Guard? Uh, These are part-time volunteer soldiers who do not have a lot of training compared to regular troops, and certainly in many cases do not have the training or the equipment for civil disorder. And yet in the 1960s, in city after city, they're the ones who are sent in to support the police when things get too bad. And so I was wondering, well, why is that? And maybe I'll do a little background chapter on the 19th century militia. Um, as sometimes happens to historians, we set our time machine to go back in time, expecting a quick trip, and then we'll come back to where we really want to be. I set my time machine back to the Jacksonian period when the militia are most called out, um, they had been called out in a few riots before the 1830s, but it's really in the 1830s and 1840s that it becomes a standard job of the militia to deal with urban disorder. And then I came across a story, which I had not heard about before, and thought it was going to be a
1: chapter. And then that chapter got longer and longer. And then at some point you realize it wants to be its own book. How exactly did you did you come across this story? Were you just flipping through an archive and saw a, you know, a, a news article clipping? Or or did someone say, hey, you might find this particular story interesting because it's relevant to your, your other interests?
0: Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't remember the exact source. I, I do remember um, the previous plan for the book was, well, it went through a few different iterations, but one plan for the book was going to be um, a much broader history of National Guard involvement in riots. And I was, as a historian of technology, I was interested in the tools that both rioters and riot control authorities were dealing with. And I remember specifically, and this would have been uh, while I was on a fellowship at the Library of Congress in 2009, reading that um, the rioters in Southwark in July of 1844 had stretched a rope across the street in the middle of the night so that when the cavalry charged, the horses would trip over this rope. And I thought, again, as a historian of technology, well, that's innovative, um, kind of appalling. But, um, it, it gave me the sense that there is a story well before the technologies that I think of as riot control technologies, plastic shields, tear gas, um, rubber bullets, those are 20th century technologies. But I realized that even in the 19th century, there was a dialogue of sorts between people protesting, rioting, whatever you want to call it, the barricades and um, throwing rocks and, and all the rest, and early attempts to deal with that, and especially efforts to figure out the role of lethal force, because that's an issue that we have today. Do you fire on the crowd? Um, We see that in the United States. We see that in other countries, this question about the shoot to kill order. And that's a question that was very much alive in the early 19th century as well. And so part of what I was trying to do here was trace that debate. And it does become one of the many themes in the book about Philadelphia, because in the earlier riots in May of 1844, the militia does not fire on the crowd. Um, in the later riots in July of 1844, they very much do. And they are criticized for both, uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't, as a previous historian of the riots has, has put it. So um, that, you know, was just one of the many threads I, um, ended up exploring, but that
1: was the first one that I was interested in. So I was wondering if you could, could set the stage for us, uh, you know, what, what was the state of American politics and culture like in 1844 and the, and a little bit uh, prior?
0: So what amazes me, again, as a 20th century historian uh, visiting the 19th century, is how unsettled everything in the United States was in the 1840s. We think about sectional crisis, because in hindsight, we know that's the one that ends up tearing the country apart. But there were so many other things uh, going on, the very boundaries of the country were not determined. Um, This is a point where Texas is still an independent republic, but there's a big move on already to annex it. Uh, The boundary with British North America is undecided and uh, that could potentially lead to a war with Great Britain. Um, So we don't really know at this point where America begins and ends. Uh, We don't know Uh, what the political structure will be. The Whig Party is only founded in 1834, so the whole idea of a stable two-party system, as Richard Hofstadter will tell us, is pretty new and uncertain, and people are not sure if they want any parties, if they want two parties, and so people are founding new parties at a pretty rapid clip um, because they don't know which ones will end up or, or how many will end up as significant. And then probably most important to my story, the question of citizenship is up in the air. Uh, Again, with hindsight, we think particularly of African-American citizenship, which in this period is diminishing. Uh, Philadelphia or Pennsylvania uh, disfranchises its African-American citizens in the 1830s. Uh, We can think about women's rights, of course, with Seneca Falls. And then in my case, we need to think about immigrants because One of the odd things about America is how welcoming it is to immigrants, white immigrants in the 1840s, how easily it is uh, easy it is for them to gain full citizenship after five years and become voters and participants in the political process. And many Americans who are native born look at that and decide that that is not what they want. And so they don't try really to cut off immigration so much as to make it unpleasant by reducing the ability of immigrants to become citizens. They propose a 21-year waiting period for citizenship, which of course would mean a non-citizenship for a very long time, uh, including for adults who come over, and um, also efforts to restrict uh, the holding of government offices, not only high offices like the presidency, which is Restricted by the Constitution, but all the way down to government contracts, uh, they want
1: to have those reserved for native-born citizens. So I was wondering if you could start by introducing Louis Charles Levin, uh, one of the, the I would say central characters of your story, uh, and just sort of explain what his views were, uh, because I think that uh, how he sees the world and conceives of is very much uh, you know highly relevant to the story that you end up telling here about ethnic conflict and ethnic strife at the time.
0: So I don't know if this book has a hero, but it certainly has an anti-hero in Lewis Charles Levin. Um, In some ways, he's an American success story. His parents are themselves immigrants. They are Jewish immigrants from England. They come over, uh, Levin is born in South Carolina, probably fairly humble circumstances. His father dies when he's not that old. He does manage two years of college at, um, what becomes the University of South Carolina, to a different name then, um, bounces around from career to career, he, he has a dry goods store, he runs a school, he goes down to Mississippi and is involved in a duel, um, and apparently is wounded. It's, it's very hard to know how to separate the fact from the legend in some of these things. Uh, he ends up, uh, marrying, uh, two women, one dies soon after their marriage, the other, uh, lives longer. Um, both of whom have some social position. So he's sort of coming up in the world. He uh, gains admission to the bar and is a successful trial lawyer in Baltimore. Um, So far, so good, right? We can imagine the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical about him. But um, first of all, he drinks a lot, gets in a lot of fights, um, leaves Baltimore for reasons I could never figure out, but ends up in Philadelphia, drinks even more and describes himself later on as kind of, being found, you know, in the gutter or in the you know back room of a tavern, um, drunk or hungover. And and uh, at one point he goes bankrupt and actually was able to find his bankruptcy records in the archives. So I can tell you how many spoons he owned. Um, but uh, the way he climbs out of this is, first of all, by becoming a spokesperson for temperance. Uh, they you know, the temperance movement of the 1840s was one of the major reform movements, and they loved to have a reformed drunkard, as Levin called himself. Um, But he also gets into anti-Catholicism and um, opposition to Irish Catholics in particular. So he fuels his rise to the top by demonizing other people, uh, particularly Irish Catholic immigrants. He is the editor of a newspaper. And um, that, in the 1840s, is a, often a partisan position can lead to elective office. So he's not one of the earliest founders of what becomes the nativist party in Philadelphia, but he is a inspiration for them and becomes one of their, uh, again, most talented speakers. He is, you know, some people compare him to Daniel Webster in his oratory. So he's a very effective force. Unfortunately, he uses that talent to
1: cast hatred on others there was, um, you know, one particular, uh, you know, story that you mentioned about him that I found particularly interesting where uh, just to, that I think it, it does an interesting job of maybe just describing the kind of, the how kind of complicated some of these, um, you know, views held by, by nativists where that he, he beat up a, an elderly Irish man for making fun of a, of a free black man for not having the right to vote. Um, so I, I was, you know, what, what was, I guess, you know, was being a nativist not necessarily, um, you know, it, it was it was it just just meant that you were anti-immigrant, not necessarily that you had other views pertaining to, let's say, uh, slavery or the rights for African Americans. Was it uh, or or did it was it really person by person that you would find someone who was xenophobic and also racist and also all of these you know other uh, bad <laughs> bad qualities? So um, it's
0: a great question. I, I think that politics operated on multiple levels here. Um, so there definitely were nativists who were sympathetic to abolition. Um, one of the uh, founders of the nativist party in Pennsylvania is Peter Sken Smith, whose brother, Garrett Smith, is one of the leading abolitionists and one of the founders of the Liberty Party. So I just wonder about you know those two brothers sort of sitting down, well, I founded a political party. Oh yeah, well, I'm gonna found a political party. Um, what, what kind of sibling rivalry was going on? Um, but uh, there were complications as well. So on the Irish Catholic side, you had what was then called the repeal movement, essentially uh, support for Irish autonomy within the British Empire. They wanted to get um, Ireland's parliament back. And the leading spokesman for that was Daniel O'Connell in Ireland, who very famously sent a message to Irish Americans saying, if you're against oppression, you should be against slavery. Uh, This was very divisive. The repeal movement split in Philadelphia and elsewhere, um, and many Irish Americans who were loyal to the Democratic Party, often the party of slaveholders, rejected O'Connell's appeal, but it does suggest that there were abolitionists in both camps and um, plenty of racism to go around. And, you know, this is, I think, true um, for much of early 19th century politics, that um, the coalitions don't always line up neatly. And that's one of the issues with party formation that you can have people with very different views within the same party. And of course, this eventually splits up the Whig party and contributes to the sectional crisis. So I I think it's not too surprising um, to find that. It's also on the social level, um, you find some nativists coming from fairly elite propertied Whig circles, and others are coming out of the Democratic party because they see Irish immigrants as a threat to the working men's livelihood. And so, again, they're opposed to giving working contracts to Irish immigrants. They don't want them holding office within the Democratic Party. Um, They have movements to have um, people only do trade with native-born Americans. So here's a native-born tobacconist, here's a native-born grocer that you can give your money to as opposed to those immigrants. And so there, there is both elite and working class nativism, um, as well as more tolerant strains coming from both of those social
1: hierarchies. Uh, the next person uh, that that you discuss in the book is George Cadwalader. So I was wondering if you could tell us about him, what his profession was, and uh, his centrality to the, to the, the story.
0: So I, I think of Cadwalader, and I've tried to position him at least in the narrative as as the opposite of Levin. Um, I ended up thinking of this whole situation as something of a chessboard, where the kings are, you know, start off on the opposite edges of the board and and don't get too close together. I tried for a while to figure out if if Levin and Kenwalader were even at the same place at the same time, and I ended up thinking, no, that, that Levin is the guy who will go stand on the steps or on the bench and give a fiery speech, and then when the first shot gets fired, he leaves. And Kedwalader is the man who is sort of taking things slow, sitting in his parlor, drinking wine, and he won't show up until that first shot is fired. So just as Levin goes off the stage, Kedwalader enters. And if you want to put on a play, you could have them cast in the same, by the same actor. I don't know if that would work with costume changes, but you could try. Um, so Kedwalader, you know, unlike Levin, his family has been in the North America since the 1690s, I think. Uh, one of his ancestors is personally recruited by William Penn. Um, comes over and is part of this Welsh migration that gives us all those wonderful names along the Pennsylvania main line. And uh, the Cadwallader's are everywhere in Pennsylvania politics. They're in government, they're founding some of these famous benevolent institutions, and they're in the military. Uh, so Cadwallader's grandfather fights in the revolution. Cadwalader's father um, is deployed in the War of 1812. He doesn't see combat, but he um, rises to be the major general of Uh, the Pennsylvania militia, and George Kidwalader who's not interested in civilian politics, decides that his contribution will also be in the military realm. So he joins, I believe as a teenager, he joins a militia unit, um, then becomes captain and works his way up until he is elected um, Brigadier General of the 1st Brigade, which covers the city of Philadelphia. And so he doesn't have to do this, he's very wealthy, Um, he wouldn't have to do any work if he could have just clipped his coupons, but Um, He likes doing some work. He um, manages estates as a lawyer and makes a lot of money that way. He owns a lot of property in Philadelphia and elsewhere. Um, But again, of a sense, I think of noblesse oblige and an enjoyment of action. He builds up this militia career and is ready to serve when he's called. I
1: was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you've, you've already met, mentioned a little bit about, about some of these these topics, but but just some of the major sources of nativism and anti-Irish sentiment.
0: So, um, the, there are different threads. Um, so again, as I've mentioned, part of it, I think, was economic competition. Uh, we sometimes talk about the Panic of 1837, which suggests that it was over a year. It Very much was not. It was a multi-year depression that had lots of people anxious about their livelihoods, and so this goes on into the 1840s. Um, You have um, the waves of Irish immigration. This is before the Great Famine, but one thing to understand about the potato famines, the reason that happened is because potatoes were the last food the Irish had left. Um, Already in the 1830s, Um, Irish population had greatly exceeded the growth of the Irish economy. So people were pretty poor, um, being reduced to eating potatoes and not much less, not much else. And so many of them were trying to get out. Um, many go to England, uh, via Liverpool, others go to Canada and others of course come to the United States, including Philadelphia, uh, a seaport city. Um, so they're coming in much larger numbers and that adds to the sense that, um, there is economic conflict. Uh, competition. And then on top of that, uh, they are bringing with them a religion that had been tolerated in the United States, uh, more or less from the founding, but had never been nearly as visible as it becomes in the 1830s. Um, So one way I think about this in terms of our present politics is right now we, I think, have two major nativist strains. Um, People worried about economic competition, maybe worried about immigration from Latin America in particular, and people who are worried about religion, uh, tend to demonize Muslim immigrants. And in the 1840s, both of those anxieties were personified by the Irish Catholic immigrant, Um, many of them poor, but also um, bringing a minority religion.
1: That's actually thing that I found so striking was the similarities that could be drawn. Uh, It it would be such a a wonderful essay to read about just drawing the similarities between anti Catholic anti irish sentiment sentiment uh, during this period of time and, and anti-muslim sentiment today um and in the past you know decade two decades since 911 it would be just really fascinating uh and I think very easy for someone to draw those comparisons um the, the the next person I want to ask you about uh, who's also central to your story uh is is Morgan McMichael so uh you know I was wondering if you could tell us who he was uh and and why he's another person that you that you pick up on so uh, McMichael is, is probably the most frustrating character in the book in that
0: he is so interesting and so poorly documented. Um, we have uh, very few letters in his hand. Uh, in some ways, that's a blessing because he had pretty bad handwriting, um, but he he is just a, an incredibly complex figure. He is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. His first love is poetry. He writes a poem. He uh, is praised by Edgar Allan Poe, probably a lot of back scratching there because um, if you, you know, say something nice about one person's poem, he'll print yours. Um, he is the editor of various journals. He ends up spending his longest period as the editor of North America, and that's, that's later, but he also has his political career and he bounces from party to party. He, um, starts as Democrat, then goes to a Whig, ends up later on, um, helping to found the Republican party in Pennsylvania and, um, later serves as mayor of Philadelphia and is now commemorated with a statue in Fairmont Park, which he helped um, push through. So he has this incredible life. Again, there's no full-scale biography because I don't think the sources would allow it, but my understanding of him is that he's the one person in the story who is trying to de-escalate. Levin is always escalating. He is trying to mobilize people, and one way you do that is by, you know, warning in apocalyptic terms about the dangers of these invaders, Michael, as far as I can tell, is trying to be friends with everyone. He um, is trying to be friends with the Irish. He's got the Irish last name, even though he's a Protestant. He trades on that and is trying to win their votes, and he does. Um, But he is also a Protestant, so he's trying to win the Protestant vote. He is a Whig, so he's going for the property class. He's an educated man. He's going for that. But um, when uh, after the Pennsylvania Hall is burned in 1838, and there's a threat to burn a building intended as an asylum for colored children, not only does Michael show up to defend the asylum, he persuades a rowdy bunch of firemen to help him uh, to put out the fire and, and keep away the people who are trying to commit the arson, which is pretty impressive because these firemen of Philadelphia do not listen to very many people. So I, I think he must have been a real charmer. Um, he is elected as sheriff at a time when Philadelphia sheriffs were dying or getting beaten up in office. Um, uh, you know, why anyone want that job? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, so he has some physical courage. Um, he's just an amazing figure. Um, but eventually he, his crust, uh, between these two forces of, um, Levin trying to, you know, cause
1: violence and Kowalter uh, hoping to put it down. You know, like so many issues in uh, American politics, the classroom seems to be, uh, you know, a major place where a lot of the arguments. You know, everything from from Ruby Bridges to you know uh, to to Columbine to you know arguments over, uh, you know, over you know uh, pledging allegiance to the American flag. So I was wondering to talk about some of the the debates and issues that happened uh, in the classroom or or during in, in schools at this period of time in Philadelphia.
0: Yeah, so the 1844 nativist riots are sometimes referred to the Bible riots. Um, That is a term that is hardly ever used in the 1840s. I I can't say never because I did find one reference to it, I think, in 1844, possibly 1845. Um, So at some level, I want to downplay that. On the other hand, uh, this is one of the events, is that... um, One of the challenges of having a pluralist society, whether it's the United States or Canada or England or Ireland, is um, that pretty much everyone uh, in these countries um, agrees that the Bible is important. And they think that if you're going to have a school, the children should be reading the Bible. Um, Certainly a lot of Protestants and Catholics agree on this, Jews maybe a little less so because... Um, they're anxious about any version of the New Testament. But Catholics and Protestants, again, in all of these countries, um, have the idea that the Bible is probably the most important part of the curriculum. And some of them think, well, we can teach it in a secular way. We're going to do it at least non-denominational. We're going to teach the moral lessons of the Bible, and that will be good. Uh, The problem is that they don't agree on what a Bible is. Um, Famously, Protestants use, at this point, the King James translation, um, whereas Catholics prefer another translation, um, also done in the 16th century, uh, the Douay Bible. And, um, you look at these side by side, and you might not notice a lot of differences, but once you look at it closely, or more commonly, once a newspaper or a pamphlet points out the differences to you, you start to realize, uh, first of all, there are whole books in the Catholic Bible that are not shown up in the Protestant Bible but also the word choices and translations matter. So the Catholic Bible has bishops and the King James Bible does not mention bishops. It has overseers, I believe. Um, So how do you translate a term like presbyter? Is it elder or is it priest? And these have a lot of significance for how people are going to worship and how they're going to understand especially authority. Um, So um, again, one of the trends in US history over the last uh, 30 years or so is to try to understand U.S. history in a broader international context. So, you know, one of the things I try to point out is that this debate had been going on in Ireland well before it hit the United States. Um, but it does hit, it hits uh, more in New York City, where uh, Bishop John Hughes, Dagger John, is trying to find a way for Catholic schoolchildren to use the Catholic Bible using public funds. And then it reaches uh, Baltimore and, and Philadelphia as well. Um, So it becomes a wedge issue, to use a contemporary term, that Levin and others can use to say, um, if you let these Irish Catholics have political power, they are going to throw your Protestant Bibles out the schoolhouse window. And, um, you know, as we speak, and there are these big debates in Florida in particular, but other states as well, about, you know, what we should be teaching in the schools. Um, it's one of those cases where the historian gets confused between whether he's reading a 21st century or a 19th century headline. Um, yes, we've been having the same fight over different texts for a very long time, really for as long as we've had public
1: schools. The main vehicle that you describe, the, the main political vehicle, is the, the American Republicans. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk about the American Republicans. Uh, and you, you mentioned a little bit before the, the Hofstadter quote, but just you know, what what political parties were like at this period of time, uh, and you know the, the sort of the power that the American Republicans were were amassing, uh, especially in Philadelphia, that then would eventually lead to the you know the riots and fires that I will, will quickly be <laughs> soon be speaking about. <laughs> so uh, in the 1820s, we have what are, are
0: sometimes called the era of good feelings, which also called the era of one party rule. Uh, the Federalist Party is dead, you have what's left is the Democratic Party, but that has different factions. You have Jackson men and and Adams men after John Quincy Adams, and uh, from the 1820s into the 1830s this kind of solidifies into what become the Democratic Party, um, the descendants of the Jacksonians and the Whigs, which is everyone else. Um, But again, this is pretty new, Uh, no one knows if it's going to last, and other people are forming either associations that are going to cross party lines, um, or eventually more formal parties. So you have nativist groups, um, in, of both types You have associations starting in New York City in, in the 1830s, um, that may be a faction, say, within the Democratic Party. And then, um, as people see potential for this, they spin off their own party. And again, there are all kinds of parties going on. there liberty party there's Workingmen's party there are lots of efforts to create new political parties um, in this period because no one knows what's going to stick and uh so one of the reasons again i don't love the term bible riots is i i think they take that term takes attention away from a more important development than the bible fight in philadelphia which was the election in new york city of a nativist mayor Uh, James Harper. And when a third party like the nativist party in New York takes on what was a a pretty major victory um, in an election like that, it makes a lot of people think, oh yes, this one has legs. We can really run with this. And so that election in April of 1844 motivates Philadelphia nativists to try to build up their party. And in an age before Twitter or television or anything like that, the way you do that is through mass rallies. And so there are a number, there are some in Independence Square, um, behind Independence Hall, but also at the ward level, they are taking to the streets, trying to get people riled up and get them enthusiastic about this new party. And that's the pivot from having a lot of nasty newspaper editorials to getting to street violence.
1: Following up on that, you know, now, now, uh, in 1844 you know you you described that there there were riots and there was conf, you know there was conflict you know in the 30s leading all the way up but that 1844 is really just this this year this several month long period starting in May of just just chaos, chaos. so you know what what led to the, to the riots uh in May uh, and then you know if you could just give a little it's so hard to kind of get into Describe blow for blow what, what happened. Uh, but if we could just sort of talk about what led to it and then what that what that actually looked like.
0: <laughs> so um, America becomes a lot more violent, or I should say American cities become a lot more violent uh, starting in the early 1830s. In 1831 for example, there's a riot in Providence, Rhode Island, in which the militia is surrounded and ends up shooting into a crowd. And people don't quite know what's going on. There are so many different kinds of riots. You have labor strikes that turn violent. You have elections that turn violent. Most, but not all of the riots have to do with African-American status of some kind, um, whether it's attacks on abolitionists are are pretty common um, or attacks on African-American neighborhoods. And, you know, at the time, people are throwing up their hands saying, what is happening to our country? And, you know, for close to 200 years since, historians have been looking at these events and saying, yeah, what was going on there? Um, Certainly urbanization is part of it. There's something about a city of strangers that maybe makes it easier to fight or you just have um, less restraint. Um, It's harder to round up a posse of men of goodwill to put down the violence. Um, That seems to be the common cause for a lot of this. And... um, then there's the question of what will people actually do. Uh, the late Charles Tilley, the sociologist, um, over the course of, of various articles and books, puts forward a the- theatrical metaphor of repertoire that people don't have an exact script. They're not doing line by line, but they have a rough idea of how they expect things to go. Kind of like a commedia dell'arte, where you know the plot, but you can ad lib a few of the lines. And so we see this with in many cases a riot that is going to burn one building, like Pennsylvania Hall, and then disperse. Um, Okay, we've made our point, now we can go home. Or maybe they will steal one ballot box and go home. And the Philadelphia riots could have been this. Um, The nativists have a rally up in an Irish Catholic neighborhood to try to show who's boss. Um, They are chased away by the Irish workers there. And, um, there's an incredible image of this, um, that the Library of Company of Philadelphia has, uh, showing these Irishmen in their shirt sleeves, kind of tearing a stage down from underneath the feet of a nativist gentleman in his frock coat and top hat. Um, that could have been the end of it, or the nativists return, um, the following weekday, the, the first one was on Friday, They come back on Monday, Levin is there giving a speech, And then something unexpected happens, which is a sudden rainstorm. And this is, again, the kind of thing that I think you see in a lot of riots across time and space, is something unexpected happens, uh, something that shocks a lot of people. It could be a gunshot, it could be a window breaking, or it could even be the weather, where people now don't know what to do. So they all want to run under the nearest cover. I think the, the smarter ones among the nativists go to a tavern but um, the greater number head to this marketplace that happens to be full of more Irish Catholic workers. That turns into a fist fight. Someone fires a pistol and that escalates. And so then that starts uh, a day of rioting, leaving two men dead, two uh, seriously wounded. Um, Again, could have ended there. There are a lot of exit ramps on this highway, but um, whipped up by Net Levin and people like him uh, the nativists come back for more for a second day of gunfire, and then on a third day they come back and there's less gunfire but more arson. And it's that third day of rioting that they end up burning down two Catholic churches um, that becomes one of the flashpoints. Uh, at this point, the militia deploys in great force. Kid Waller is out there behind a cannon, giving people five minutes to dis- disperse before he fires. They believe him. Um, by all accounts, when Kid Waller gets angry, he gets really convincingly angry. Um, And so they're able to suppress the violence. They bring in Marines. They bring in Navy sailors. They bring in militia troops from other counties. And Philadelphia is more or less under martial law for some time. Uh, No one's really sure if it's going to last. Uh, There's a massive uh, Fourth of July parade by the nativists. Um, At that point, the largest parade in Philadelphia's history. And that, too, is a kind of form of street politics, if not necessarily violent street politics, and the, the difference between a parade and a riot is often one brick. Um, uh, the, the mini-series Andor does this very well, I don't wanna give any spoilers, but um, they, they understand the dynamics of riots perfectly well in that, that series. Um, and then uh, the, uh, the, the joke of it is everyone gets through July 4th congratulating themselves that there hasn't been another fight and then the fight begins on July 5th um, because a, a Catholic priest who has been stockpiling weapons um, in preparation for July 4th is discovered to have a basement full of guns and and trained Catholics to use them. Um, and so another mob is going to basically burn down his church. The militia deploys. Uh, they end up defending the church, but only at the cost of a full-scale battle uh, with the mob. Yeah, not only did you have the rope stretched across the street, but the mob has three cannon that it manages to steal from ships and shipyards and so you actually have artillery duels between the mob and the militia um on this terrible night
1: of July 7th 1844 can you can you describe what the state of the mob was like you know obviously in a mob it's hard to say if there are leaders uh necessarily but but you know who who is involved in, in these riots at this point like why you know what? What even would would bring was bringing people down there. Was it just you know the the fun of a good fight, or was it you know you know I, I don't know. So, so, so yeah, sure. Well, so, according this interview in, in January
0: of 2023, as we have these trials for the January 6th, 2021 riots, and uh, again, there's a kind of timelessness to this where. Um, many of the people who are charged with offenses from January 6, 2021 say, oh, I wasn't being violent. I was just there to see what was going on, or I was peacefully protesting. And some of them are telling the truth. Um, what we know from current events and sociology and the rest is that um, in a given crowd, uh, let's say you have a thousand people, you might have 50 who are actively going to be throwing punches and stones. But those 50 is still 50 people, which is a lot, and they're going to be dispersed in the crowd. um, So it can be very hard for the forces of order, uh, whether it's police or troops, um, or some other, you know, sheriff's posse, to isolate them from the larger group. Um, Certainly this has been tried. Uh, One of my students uh, was a uh, veteran of the British Army, and, you know, he could tell me in, in Northern Ireland, you know, they would wade into the crowd and try to figure out which 50 people they had to arrest in order to subdue a much larger number. Um, The most violent people in these crowds were uh, probably, again, the volunteer firemen. Um, The firehouses of Philadelphia in this period acted as gangs essentially um where they would race to be the first to get to the fire pump and if they weren't first they would cut the hoses of the fire company that got there before them and have huge fist bites and uh, sometimes using knives and guns and other weapons and if there weren't a fire and it was a warm saturday night they would just raid the other firehouse and try to destroy its engine um and you see some of that uh, especially in the may riots where there is a Irish Catholic firehouse that is attacked, um, probably by members of rival fire companies, even in the middle of this larger riot. Um, uh, Philadelphians, uh, you know, and, and others in port cities love to blame violence on sailors, um, probably with some justification. Um, when we see people firing these cannon, these may well have been sailors who were trained to do that. Um, some ships were still armed, especially for the Pacific trade, where they would have to expect some piracy in Southeast Asia. Um, so these are people who have training on that. Um, and then, you know, generally, if you look at who gets arrested and who is wounded, um, this is pretty much universal. It's going to be young men. Um, 19 and 20 are uh, the, the the real danger years, but anything from like 16 to 25, um, those are, you know, the young juiced up men, or as they called them at the time, half-grown boys who, um, you know, have the energy, have the foolhardiness to be out there in the front lines, um, while the somewhat older men, like Levin, as I say, when the shooting begins, they're going to slip out a back door and into a taxi. Um, So uh, it's not, you know, completely separate. Occasionally you'll find someone who is a a minor functionary um, actually involved uh, one of the minor characters here is Augustine Peel, a member of the famous Peel family, Charles Wilson Peel and his progeny. Um, he ends up losing an arm um, to a gunshot wound um, as, you know, one of these party leaders. But um, in many cases, it's the old men spurring the young men into the actual violence.
1: Yeah, so it seems to be a universal truth across time. Uh, I was wondering if you could describe how the how the July riots compared with the May riots uh, so it they are they are shorter, um they are more violent, and
0: for the most part, they do not involve Irish Catholics. So with the May riots, you have um essentially a pogrom to use a, a somewhat anachronistic term. It's a term that enters English later in the nineteenth century, but uh, a Protestant mob entering an Irish Catholic, heavily Irish Catholic, not exclusively, but heavily Irish Catholic neighborhood, the third ward of Kensington, and attacking people and eventually setting fire to homes and churches. Um, The Irish Catholics are on their home turf. They have more firearms, and most of the people killed in the May riots are in fact Protestants. Um, We only know the name of one Irish Catholic who was killed, though there might've been others or bodies found in the ashes that were never identified. Um, So that is a a Catholic versus Protestant riot uh, with the militia mostly standing back. Um, They, from time to time, try to separate the sides but they're not actively engaged, and again, take some criticism for that. The July riots take place in a different neighborhood that is predominantly Protestant, though it does have this Catholic church on Queen Street, St. Philip's Church. And um, there, there again, are some attacks on Irish homes and the church itself, but Cadwallader deploys his militia to defend the church. And so you end up, instead of having Protestants versus Catholics, you have militia versus mob. Um, there are Catholics uh, in Cadwallader's Brigade. Um, a Catholic company is, is attacked and that becomes part of the story. Uh, there are also nativists in Cadwallader's Brigade. And some of them are, um, some of them don't show up. First of all, they, they think, well, why should I come out in defense of a Catholic church and they stay home and various court-martials to determine whether they never got the order or whether they were in fact disobeying orders. Um, And then there are other nativists who deploy, and uh, in some cases are killed and wounded, uh, fighting against people whose beliefs they share, uh, most likely, but they put their duty and their uniform over their own personal beliefs. And this raises, to my mind, a pretty serious constitutional issue, which is we know that the framers and their Whig ideology liked militias more than standing armies because they thought that standing armies were tools of tyranny but i have yet to find a case where they really explain what they thought a militia should do when called out to riot duty it's something like a jury where you want the militia to represent the people and just as jury nullification is controversial to this day um should a jury that you know believes a law is unjust uh acquit someone who has broken that law, Um, do we want a militia to just follow orders or do we want the members of the militia to represent the will of the people, which in some case may be on the side of the mob? So you have this tricky question of uh, whether, if the mob in some ways is the people and the militia is the people, should there even be a fight? And the the one person who articulates this the best is Alexis de Tocqueville um, in a, a section from Democracy in America where he is responding to stories of the Baltimore riot in 1812 when the militia did not act. And he says, uh, as part of his warnings about the tyranny of the majority, you can't expect the militia to help you, it's just the majority in arms. Uh, Interestingly, 1844 disproves that, at least in some cases. Here is a case where uh, the majority in arms, to use Tocqueville's term, nonetheless turns out to fight and die in defense of a minority. I was wondering if you
1: could then talk about the, the aftermath um, of the riots and, you know, what the kind of the the outcomes were for some of the uh, the the characters that we talked about before, Levin, Kedwalader, uh, McMichael.
0: So I really wanted this to have a happier ending um, with, you know, Levin getting his comeuppance and, uh, you know, being um, thrown in jail or at least disgraced or something. Um, in fact, uh, he gets elected to Congress. Um, And so, uh, uh,
1: not Not as bad as George George Santos.
0: Well, I mean, the thing about Levin is he's been reelected and reelected. You know, Abraham Lincoln got one term in the House of Representatives. Lewis Levin got three and was actually, I think, in his last term seated directly in front of Lincoln, though I'm sure Lincoln could see over his head because Lincoln was very tall. Um, But, you know, if you imagine this, uh, you know, Lincoln having to be junior to this uh, fanatical, hatred mongering, you know, uh, demagogue, um, it, it, um, it's really a pity. Um, and you know, really, uh, so Levin spends his time in Congress sort of railing against the Catholics and not getting anything done. Um, again, one of the people who speaks up against him and sort of in favor of more tolerance is Jefferson Davis um you know the the um 19th century is a dreadful place um but uh so levin uh gets you know some kind of honor um he ends up um uh you know losing his seat and and ends up dying in an insane asylum so his his last days are not good but he um unfortunately the kind of hatred and violence he is promoting um uh does do him good for a time uh could Walleter... um basically hated doing the riot duty. He had signed up to fight for his country, and he gets to do that in Mexico. And uh, from what I can tell, uh, he was much happier fighting foreigners uh, in Mexico, um, however just or unjust that cause. Um, Ends up being something of a war hero, charges up uh, the hill at Chapultepec and captures the enemy flag and comes home to great honors. And um, uh, everyone, you know, gives him a parade. And that, that helps uh, people unite behind him. Uh, later on, he, um, does serve in the Civil War. Um, I have this pet theory, it's not in the book, that if he had been elected to Major General, as he tries to be in the late 1850s, uh, he would never have let Johnston get out of the Shenandoah without pursuit, and the Battle of First Ball Run would have been a Union victory, and that would have been it. Um, so there's your, your counterfactual for the day, uh, because Kudwalader really liked to fight, um, and, um, his superior, Robert Patterson, I, I think was a less aggressive general and he's the one who um, really messes up in July of 1861. Um, McMichael, as I say, goes on to found the Republican Party um, and uh, helps consolidate the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia in the 1840s was, was very small, two square miles. Uh, can, uh, McMichael helps push through the consolidation with Philadelphia County to give us the much larger uh, territory that we now have today for the city of Philadelphia. And then the the last figure we haven't really talked about is uh, Bishop Kenrick, Uh, Francis Patrick Kenrick, who um, goes on to become Archbishop of Baltimore. So the most senior post in the American Catholic hierarchy at that time. Um, And uh, so, you know, they all um, have their afterlives. Um, Again, the sort of more prominent men outliving
1: some of the younger men who uh, had to be on the front lines. You know, I was wondering if, if to just sort of close things out and to and to go beyond even you know the scope, but you know what 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 sort of comes of the of anti-Irish sentiment and nativism? Because I think today, uh, you know, for people that know nothing of any history at all, the idea that there would have been this anti-Irish sentiment in America might seem strange or bizarre. But obviously, it's is a huge uh, huge issue uh, for 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 decades and for for centuries. So so.
0: Yeah, one of the great ironies here is that this is all taking place in in the summer of 1844, which was the last good potato crop. Uh, by September of 1844, you're seeing these little messages in the newspaper, like, hey, this weird thing happened to this farmer up in upstate New York or in New England, where he opened his basement and all the potatoes were rotten. Isn't that weird? Um, by 1845, the blight has spread to Ireland and um, things are getting bad there, you know, I think is worse in Black 47, 1847. So whatever hopes the nativists had of reducing or maintaining the Irish presence in Philadelphia, they are just swamped. The number of Irish refugees really at this point from the famine uh, are, is just much greater than Philadelphia had ever seen before. And so by the 1840s, you know, late 1840s into the 1850s, um, you can't hope to restrict their numbers. That said, the nativist movement becomes stronger than ever before or since really in the 1850s with the rise of the American or so-called Know Nothing Party, um, which is not exactly the same as the American Republican Party. Um, Certainly some of the same people are involved, but others like Levin are essentially purged from the party. The American Republican Party had been a let's call it a a normal party with wards and meetings. It did not have the secrecy that gave rise to the Know Nothing name or the fraternal rituals. Uh, Levin was not part of that. They did not like Levin. And that's one of the reasons that he ends up in in some disgrace in the 1850s. Uh, But there is a massive um, movement uh, of nativism in the 1850s. Um, There's another riot in Kentucky that is somewhat similar to the one in Philadelphia. Eventually, uh, most of the nativists end up in the Republican Party. By no means all Republicans were nativists, nor were all nativists Republicans, but many were. Um, that includes people like Simon Cameron, who becomes Lincoln's first Secretary of War. And um, the nativist strain remains. There are various efforts at constitutional amendments that will, um, in one way or another, restrict Catholic power. Th- those don't pass, but those are part of the Republican movement in the late 19th century. And, you know, I think to some degree, you can trace it forward into the 20th century with uh, the Johnson Reed Act of 1924 and going forward. Um, And of course the election of of 1960, where, um, well, 1928 and 1960, uh, where Catholics nominate, um, or sorry, Democrats nominate uh, Americans of Irish Catholic descent uh, successfully in 1960 with the rise of John F. Kennedy. Um, Since then, of course, um, Irish Catholics Thanks to Nixon, have been recruited more heavily into the Republican Party, uh, though of course Biden is a Democrat, and um, other nativist strains have appeared in the Republican Party. So it's not a, a direct line, um, but it's hard to find a moment in the history of the Republican Party that has lacked for nativists.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah thank you for for taking it up to the to the present. I think it's useful. Also, uh, you know, uh, Obama too, having having Irish ancestry, so that there's been there's been some some very good Irish. Uh, representation in the highest office in the 21st century so um you know it's uh it's it's interesting just to just to compare you know to, you know how much how much has changed in in 170 70 odd years uh zachary thank you so much for for being a guest once again on the new books network uh, it was great to have you um and uh and yeah it was it, Wondering, I, I guess, uh, if there's anything else that you're that you're working on, any any research interests. Uh, I know you've written a lot about cities. So, are you are you going to take on another great American city, or or move on to uh, to a different topic?
0: So, I think the the great American city I'm, I may be taking on is Tyson's Corner, Virginia, uh, which not many people would think of as a city, but um, is a downtown of 100,000 jobs and increasing. Population as well. And I'm I'm looking at the newest transit system in Washington, the Dulles Corridor Extension. Uh, So, as a follow up to my first book, which was about the Washington Metro, but uh, very much a a suburban line. And I'm trying to understand uh, why people would think it was a good idea to build rapid transit in so suburban an area. I think there were good reasons, there were some good reasons for skepticism. And so I'm looking at those documents and talking to some of the people who worked on that. Uh, one of the sad parts about the Philadelphia book is I never was able to interview any of the participants. I would have loved to have dinner with Morton McMichael, um, but now that I'm back
1: into 21st century history, I will have the chance for more oral history interviews. Yeah, I'm sure that that sounds really interesting. I, I can say that the you know the the DC Metro is probably like the best public transit I've ever experienced in the entire world. Um, it's it's incredible. I mean, as a, as a New Yorker, it's, uh, it, it definitely beats, beats the subway here. Uh, so yeah, Zafir, thank you so much for, for being a guest again. Yeah. Thanks so much. It's been such a great, great pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>